This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Listen Well, I guess he's going to tell us all about it anyway. It's no longer a secret. Mark Gurman is our technology reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studios in San Francisco. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Gurman. And uh, joining us from Framingham, Mass, is uh, Ramon Lamas, he is the research director of mobile devices and artificial reality and virtual reality for International Data Corp for IDC. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Uh, Mark, I want you to kind of set this up for us because if we go back to what, 2014, Apple buys a small company in Silicon Valley called Luxview Technology. What are they doing? They're working on something called micro LED screen technologies. They got some backing from uh, John Doerr of uh, Kleiner Perth. Perkins, uh, they raise a decent amount of money. What about forty-three million? They get some more money from ID Ventures America, and now fast forward, we're in 2018, and Apple is looking to build their own screens. Is there a connection here? There's absolutely a connection. So what Luxview did before it was acquired by Apple in 2014 was own intellectual property and core technologies for the process of developing micro-LED transfers. Micro-LED transfers is the process after you grow, come up with these actual LED pixels and sub-pixels and placing them in a, in a larger screen in the actual uh, display uh, casing. Okay. Now, Ramon, the value of doing uh, th this work is not just that it's Apple controlling their own supply chain, although I guess that could be a uh, part of it, but it has to do with the fact that everybody's battery on everybody's phone dies when you don't want it to die, isn't it? Well, it, it is part of that, but, you know, phones die, you know, and phones come and go. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that is attributed to, you know, look how much, you know, power your uh, screen and, and display is going to take up. I mean, if you did, did a quick uh, chart of saying, you know, where does all your battery go to? Is it to, um, you know, make phone calls? Absolutely. Is it to, you know, keep all the other parts humming along perfectly? Yes. But considering how much you use your display and how much, you know, people want to turn on that brightness, you know, the displays are going to be a terrific battery suck. So now if you look at all these, you know, this micro-LED technology that Apple's been working so hard to develop, you know, energy is going to be sipped. I mean, we're talking drastic reduction in, in, in power usage. Uh, you're taking a look at, you know, something much cheaper, thinner, lighter to produce. Um, now, by no means is this an easy feat. This is an extraordinarily complex feat. And that's why, you know, what Apple is doing is they're going to you know, manufacture it for, them, for themselves for testing purposes and then look to somebody else, uh, you know, perhaps a, uh, you know, some of its, you know, manufacturing partners to, you know, make this in, uh, you know, terrific quantities for uh, all of the other uh, devices that Apple, uh, you know, uh, puts out there, which, oh, by the way, if you look at them, every single one of them has a display. Coincidence? I think not. 
Okay, and it can't be that Apple's the only one that's paying attention to this, Mark, right? I mean, I know that Samsung, uh, weren't they looking to do some kind of micro-LED television this year? And also uh, Sony launching what they describe as the crystal LED display. That was back in, in 2012. Are they related? Yeah, absolutely. So Sony and Samsung have had a, had an, a hand in this. They both attempted their own micro-LED developments. But the key differentiator here is that those are component companies, right? They both have display businesses. That's actually their bread and butter. Remember, the iPhone X actually uses a Samsung screen. So Apple, a company that traditionally has not made its own components other than chipsets, and for sure has not produced components even in small quantities for testing, is getting into this. They're trying to own their own future destiny. That's the significance of the uh, of the news. Okay, but if they're going to control their own destiny, what are we talking about? Licensing the technology to make make these things or is Apple going to start creating their own factories all over the world to supply the parts necessary to build this new micro LED display mark? Yeah, I'd say it's unlikely they license this out unless they have a, a complete sea change in terms of their of their business practice. They're not a company to build things and then license them out. They build things to basically license them out to their customers, put them in their products exclusively. iOS is a great example of that. Theoretically, they could have built a version of that to go on Samsung phones and Huawei phones and phones from other makers that run Android. So that's definitely not their MO. In terms of building their own facilities worldwide to mass produce these screens, they have enough money. They're approaching a trillion-dollar market cap. They have the resources. They have the engineering talent. They have an operations maestro in Tim Cook to pull it off. The question is, will they, not can they? And I don't think they will in the near term. Why not? Because manufacturing is difficult and it's expensive, and there's a lot of risk involved, right? There's companies all the time that manufacture, and there's there's yield rates, right? So an iPhone screen might have a 60% yield rate, which means 40% of the screens you're throwing out you know, in the garbage can. And Apple's a very high-margin business. It's not a company that's going to want to have to write off uh, loose supplies of unfinished products. So it's something they're probably going to stay away from. All right. Ramon, uh, last point to you. Are there any other companies that are involved in this kind of technology that investors can uh, can invest in? Look, you know, there's a long list of uh, you know, display manufacturers over here. We talked about uh, you know Samsung. You, can, you want to take a look at you know, other companies like, say, LG, which has its own business of displays. Uh, we have company uh, Sharp over in Japan, you know, doing displays. But is anybody doing really micro LED right now? I mean, period. Um, quick answer is no. This could be something that Apple could really, you know, own over here, and this is going to be another one of those, you know, terrific, uh, you know, differentiators, one of those levers that Apple is going to be able to pull like it did you know, several years ago with its retina display. Right. So, All right, we've got to leave it there. Play. Ramon Lamas, he is Research Director, Mobile Devices, AR and VR for International Data Corp. And our thanks to Mark Gurman, technology reporter for Bloomberg News. Follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Gurman. Well, the towns that uh, are being rocked are not being rocked as much as uh, they were in the past. Municipal upgrades outpacing downgrades for a third consecutive year in 2017. The economy continuing to gain strength. Uh, here to tell us about this is uh, Charles Durain. He is the president and chief executive officer of Durain Wealth Management based in Corpus Christi, Texas. And he can be followed on Twitter at Chaz Door. All right, Chaz Door. Uh, does the upgrade or downgrade scenario of municipal bonds really matter when it comes to what you're looking for in a municipal bond? Yes. 
I prefer things that, which are being upgraded, not things which are being downgraded. And if you look at some of the ones that have been downgraded, Pim, and by the way, let me do my disclaimer here. My information comes from Bloomberg and other sources, and I only provide individualized investment advice for, to my clients. Well done. That okay. Be my disclaimer, okay? If, if you're looking at things which are moving up, okay, I would be looking at non-STEM, or actually the, the STEM universities, and um, um, the heavy tech states, cities and states, as well as the big defense states. They're getting a lot of money. Okay, those are the ones that look good. It's like a group ranking report, if you would. I'd be looking at non-STEM universities and the territories for places to not want to be at this time. Right. Okay? Now, when you say and STEM, so, you're talking about science, technology, science, engineering, mathematics. Right. You're looking for exactly. locations that are heavy in those areas because you're going to see what, a, a stronger economy, better job growth, That's and so correct. on. More, more defense stuff. Absolutely, yes. So, and we know kind of what you know. It's it's Seattle. It's Seattle, Washington. Right. It's the you know Silicon Valley. It's right. uh, where Boeing is. I mean, it's those places. Charles Durain, he is the chief executive of Durain Wealth Management. Uh, they are based in Corpus uh, Christi, Texas. And and Charles, we were talking about municipal bonds and upgrades and and downgrades. I'm just want to get your thoughts on a day like today, where you see the S and P 500 losing two uh, percent. What's your next look? Do you then go and check to see what the 10-year Treasury is at 2.84% and say, gee, you know, if you're going to get 2.84% in a 10-year Treasury, you're looking at a 2% decline in stocks for the day. Does this mean that investors are much more receptive to a telephone call uh, conversation with Charles Durain, who's looking at, uh, let's say, I don't know, New York, triple tax-free 2.42%, California tax-free at 2.66%. Well, okay, first of all, I'm going to have to say my disclaimer again. My news comes, my information comes from Bloomberg and other sources, and I only provide individual advice for my clients. Having said that, you know, it's a stocks, it's always a stocks and bonds dilemma, okay? And asset allocation is an important thing because the money that you're looking for growth from should be in stocks, Municipal bonds don't grow that much. They give you a nice tax return, right? So if you're and, – and, you know, most people talk about 60-40 or 70-30 or 80-20. But the truth of the matter is if you need income and you want to reduce volatility in your portfolio, you have municipal bonds. Otherwise, you don't. Okay. Okay, but now, but but, I, I think, but as you say that, I mean, you, you've encountered, I'm sure, situations in which that makes sense. You try to impress that upon your the, your investors, your clients, but ultimately they become risk averse at the wrong time. And exactly they, right. Yeah. Back in February, back in February, when people should have been throwing money at this, they really didn't. They moved to bonds. Okay. Or they changed it by five percent or or ten percent. And so they got bonds, and they didn't really get much for doing that, So, which, which is what I caution people about. If you're going to invest in something, you want to get paid well to do it. So as you know, the market moved up sharply from those lows in February, and now it looks like we're trying to repeat those right now. But having said that, you know, the one-year Treasury is about uh, 2%, the two years 230, the 10s 284, and the 30 years 308. Um, if going over to the muni, muni side, it's a 158, 250, and 309. And so uh, looking at the munis and the treasuries 
versus stocks over a five-year period, some days when the market is down, you probably want to buy some stocks, okay? And so, and also, if you live in New York, in New York, you have to own municipal bonds because the tax is so high there. And, and now it, it's really kind of higher because of the salt thing. Right, because or, uh, you're not going right. to be able to yes. deduct uh, – well, you get a, right. you get the $10,000 maximum deduction, right, but, but uh, you're not going to get to deduct uh, your state and local uh, so if, property effectively taxes. So effectively it raises your tax bracket pretty substantially. So munis in New York and, and other highly taxed states – um, look even better. Right. right. I was thinking, for example, even in, in Massachusetts, you, you know, for a uh, what is it for a ten-year muni? At least if you if you look at uh, sort of an agglomeration of the rates, we're looking at almost two point seven percent triple tax-free. Right, which is not bad, not bad at all. No. So uh, one of the things I you know I wanted to mention today was what's going on with Puerto Rico, and and the fact that uh, the Puerto Rico the Judge Swain, who's overseeing the Puerto Rico bankruptcy has really pushed back on all the legal, all the legal expenses. They'd spent about $75 million in legal expenses on this, and, and all sorts of crazy things were happening. You know, seven lawyers would show up. Well, she said, two only. Anybody else who needs to listen? And listen on the telephone. I thought that was just terrific. Well, because they're, they're, well, and, I think the charge was like they were charging $75 million oh, in fees. It was, it was, if, if you use a lawyer in Puerto Rico, it's $222. If you use one in New York, it's $774, the average. And then there was one guy, I want to know who he is, who's getting $1,426 an hour. I'm guessing he's like the senior of all the seniors in that particular thing. But, but you know, it's a bankruptcy case. And the judge has a right to ask you to lower things. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, and but in fact, re- just to give you the details, right, it said here that, and this is a reporting from Bloomberg and other news sources, that there are five law firms and they filed nearly $50 million in fees yeah. out of the total fees requested by 30 law firms, consulting and financial firms. Exactly. That was a that was a great Bloomberg story this morning, and and you know I read that and and we we all chuckled about it because it's like really how much more could you charge? But th- the point is that doesn't help get things done. That hurts things getting done. You have so many people involved. You want to slim it down, streamline it, and finally get the course to get the uh, bankruptcy settled. Which hopefully by April 10th they should either have a settlement. Or they decide to try the course, or try the case actually, right? Or try the course, but the oh, case. Just to let, so, one one point, because last question about Puerto Rico. Are you yes. are you invested in any Puerto Rico bonds, or are you just waiting? Is this uh, something you're on the? No, we, we we own Puerto Rico. We have been playing Puerto Rico. Okay, so you're We're there. you're going to be yes. you're going to be waiting. You're going to stick it to the end. You think? Of course. All right. Well, of done. course. I mean, you know, the whole thing about securitized bonds versus non-securitized bonds, and and you know. Bankruptcies are, are somewhat predictable in terms of the securitized people get uh, usually, uh, well, get 100 cents on the dollar. Other people get less. If you look at uh, Jefferson County, Orange County, um, and Detroit, that's kind of what happened. So that's important. People should look at things. Okay. All right. Well, they that's what we got. What, that, what that's why we appreciate you coming on and spending time with us. Charles Durain is the president and the chief executive of Durain Wealth Management. They are based in Corpus Christi, Texas, and you can follow Charles on Twitter at Chaz Door. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox in for Carol Masser. 
This is Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Uber today saying that they are uh, uh, suspending their uh, autonomous uh, vehicle efforts in order to uh, assess uh, the recent, recently reported death in Arizona of uh, a woman uh, at the... Uh, I guess the, I don't know whether it was a malfunction or something clearly went wrong with one of the autonomous uh, vehicles. Mark uh, Bergman is uh, joining us now to tell us a, a little bit more ab- about this. And uh, Mark, what can you tell us th- th- as far as what you know actually happened in, in Arizona? Um, sure. There was a uh, 49-year-old woman who was walking out in Tempe. Uh, it was around 10 o'clock last night. Uh, she was not walking the crosswalk, the, so Uber has been testing um, these vehicles in, in Tempe for some time, and uh, the police and Uber tell us that the, that the car was in autonomous mode, uh, meaning that the self-driving software was for driving the vehicle. Um, we don't know what happened then if um, she, the, the woman walked out and the car saw her and couldn't stop in time or just didn't stop at all, uh, and she was going to rush to the hospital and unfortunately died that, later that night. All right. So, Mark, uh, do we know what kind of car it was or what kind of technology was involved or any of the details there or no? Um, sure. So Uber is testing with uh, Volvo. They have a partnership there where they're, they're using some Volvo cars. Um, you know, they have their cars are outfitted with cameras, with uh, LiDAR sensors, uh, sort of the, you know, the standard kits that a lot of these companies have been doing with self-driving. So in addition to Uber, we have GM um, and uh, Waymo, which is a Google project, have been testing in, in Phoenix as well. Okay. And as far as uh, these tests are concerned, does this mean that it is the technology that is at, uh, at risk or is it the actual program? In other words, swapping out different technology or is there something larger at work? Is it about the technology and the transfer back to some kind of, you know, algorithmic uh, intelligence that tells the car stop, you know, turn sure. left, turn right and so yeah, I mean, you know, all these companies working on this will say that this is, these are not perfect systems. Right? They're, they're clearly, they passed enough regulatory muster to get on the road and test. Um, Arizona has been probably by far the most, uh, the state most willing to, to, to let the test in. They were very welcome, welcome arms to Waymo and to Uber. Um, you know, this is, we don't know at this point if it was a software issue or if it was just a, a you know, a fatality that's sort of unavoidable. Um, and the case that a lot of people, Tesla, after the Tesla accident, Elon, Elon Musk came out and said, you know, even uh, this is a terrible event, but at the same time, he thinks that self-driving and autonomous systems will make roads safer than than human drivers. I'm speaking with uh, Mark Bergen. He is a Bloomberg News reporter, and uh, he's joining us from our 960 studios in San Francisco. Uh, Now, this event in in Tempe, uh, obviously having an effect on other uh, areas, they had the... uh, I guess they had the test in Pittsburgh, in San Francisco, uh, and in Toronto, as well as in the uh, the Phoenix uh, area. Is there a, uh, a specific, let's say, kind of, I know there's LiDAR technology. Is, is there a technology that has been more difficult to judge the uh, the quality and, the, and the, the sort of consistent safety of when it comes to these kinds of vehicles? Uh, as you recall, actually, Uber just closed a, a really monumental and expensive lawsuit um, from Google, where Google was accusing Uber of, of stealing um, Google's 
self-driving LiDAR designs. Right. Uh, so Uber's LiDAR designs have been questioned, right? There are a lot of different approaches. You know, all these companies are sort of cobbling together what they think is the best self-driving system. And I'd, I'd say in the industry, no one's really agreed on, on the best system um, that for guaranteed safety. You know, you have issues where you can't always necessarily identify a pedestrian or see them. Um, this was at night. There's definitely some issues with, with rain. Um, but we don't know if it was, as far as I know, I don't think it was raining last night in, in Tempe. Uh, you know, these are systems that, that are not perfect. Uh, and in many ways, this is the first. We'll, we'll see how if regulators take how seriously um, this is a, a technology that's being tested with, with human lives. Is this at all connected with the technology that is in automobiles that are used by human beings, such as lane changing technology, blind spot detections and so on? Yeah, you know, Tesla is probably the most famous for having um, their semi-autonomous. They, they um, you know, the autopilot technology, they, they don't use LiDAR. Uh, Uber and other companies use LiDAR, and uh, you'll have people and experts in the field that LiDAR is much more effective than, than cameras and, and sensors. Um, the, the idea for, for someone like Tesla and other companies is that they're telling the, the drivers to take over in certain circumstances. I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, and enlightening us about this uh, tragic event. Mark Bergen is our Bloomberg Technology reporter in our 960 studios in San Francisco about an Uber autonomous car and a fatality uh, last night in Tempe, Arizona. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. And you'll have to deal with Pressure seems to be coming to the chief executives of major social media companies. A top official at the Federal Election Commission has uh, invited Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Jack Dorsey of Twitter, and Larry Page of Alphabet, parent company of Google, to testify at uh, a public hearing in June. Uh, the commissioner, Ellen Weintraub, tweeted images of the letters that were sent to the heads of the three companies to encourage them to save the date. Well, let's find out whether this will affect uh, investors' uh, positions in these stocks. Sarah Fryer is our technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studios in San Francisco. And, of course, you can follow Sarah on Twitter, at Sarah Fryer. And uh, joining us from New York, we have uh, Ivan Feinseth. He's the managing director and chief investment officer, Tiger financial partners. Ivan, I want to begin with you. Uh, do you believe that this has that this will have an effect on the investment thesis for companies such as Facebook? Well, not really. Uh, first of all, it was it's really the fort of Cambridge Analytica that did that failed to delete the profiles that they were supposed to delete. So uh, I assume that they somehow violated the contract. I don't know what recourse Facebook has to monitor that they deleted it. But uh, and it's really it's only 50 million profiles or 50 million members out of you know two billion members. So it's only a small um, uh, percentage. And um, there's you know this has been building for some time to keep the data secure and also to make sure that those who are on Facebook are actually real members. I mean, there are uh, a growing number of bots that are on Twitter and Facebook that um, either produce content or recirculate content. But I think the, uh, the situation for a long time of having membership data available was, you know, would be uh, controlled by giving users the ability to opt out. So I think as more people get concerned that they have more exposure to things, they can, in their profile, opt out of different things. And, but on the flip side, people do like to get information 
on things that they are interested in and do want to click on ads of things that they are interested in. So I think that this could also evolve into a paid click opportunity for members, which would also make things you know, very interesting. So I think that's the lemonade out of this lemon situation for Facebook. Uh, Ivan, so you can even answer, uh, give us your thoughts on this question. What happens if the government were to come in in some way, uh, use their same oversight that they have for traditional media companies and use them for social media companies? Well, uh, I mean, it's hard to control what is actually protected by free speech and individual members uh, expressing their opinion about things, which is what Facebook is. And in theory, the members also do have their circles of friends. So uh, while people do include a lot of people they may not know personally as friends, as friends on Facebook, um, you know, people do have the ability to control who they interact with and who interacts with them. And uh, so most of what's out there on Facebook that's generated by the individuals is, you know, personal opinion and their personal interest and their, you know, obviously like and dislike based on what they click on. All right. Well, Sarah, I want to give you, get you in here. Uh, so what if the, these companies were to have to operate under the same regulatory regime that more traditional media companies operate under? Well, Facebook is going to do its darndest to make sure that it doesn't have to live in that kind of an environment, but the calls are getting stronger. Uh, People are uh, lawmakers both in the U.S. and in Europe are calling for Facebook to give some answers for how this particular Cambridge Analytica data leak happened and why they didn't inform their users about about this. I think Facebook has traditionally been very concerned with with the kind of regulation Ivan's talking about, this free speech regulation. Meanwhile, steam ha, ha, it's been gaining steam in terms of privacy regulation, these other issues that maybe Facebook hasn't tried as hard to um, avoid uh, because it felt like it was doing a good job in these areas. Sarah, uh, just quickly, you think uh, all three, uh, Jack Dorsey, uh, Larry Page, and Mark Zuckerberg, you think they're going to pencil in time to appear before a hearing of the Federal Election Committee in June? I think that Grassley, we just heard from Grassley's office that uh, he may uh, consider the idea of having tech executives come before the committee once again. All right. We're going to, uh, of course, follow this story. We want to thank you very much, Sarah Fryer, our Bloomberg News technology reporter, joining us from our 960 studios in San Francisco. And Ivan Feinseth, he is the chief investment officer at Tigris Financial. Shares of Facebook, they are down more than $13 a share right now. That is a drop of seven and a quarter of a percent. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, the drive to the close. We take a look at the S&P 500. It was down as much as uh, 2% earlier in the day. Right now, down a little bit uh, more than 1.6%. want to bring in Margie Patel, Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager, Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us from Boston. Margie, uh, is the market's reaction today, is the market downturn when it comes to stocks, is that really just because of Facebook and the Facebook news and Cambridge Analytica? 
yes, I think just a trigger reaction. Uh, we still have a lot of nervous, nervous money. A lot of it's in the tech sector, so you didn't take much to get a big correction like this. All right. And what about, does it change your uh, overall uh, thesis for the market? Because we trade right around that 91-day moving average. As you, could, you could actually sort of draw this uh, decline and, and say, all right, if it, if it hits the 91-day moving average, we're still within areas that we understand and, and can comprehend. Uh, well, I think after the market's finished with this correction that uh, we will make an advance over the balance of the year and have a pretty reasonable total return for the year. But right now we have a little news vacuum. We have uh, Chairman Powell speaking on Wednesday, uh, plus this uh, little little flutters of tech bad news. So that's enough to set the market off today, especially when a lot of these names have had huge moves upward. It's natural to take a little off the top. And do you uh, have any uh, estimates for what you believe uh, Jerome Powell, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, will will say in terms of increases in interest rates? you believe that we're going to get that quarter point after the meeting concludes on Wednesday? Yes, I think we'll get that quarter point, and I think the market will want to hear how many more hikes he expects over the rest of 18 and into 19. Will we say three to four, which is market consensus? That's what I expect he'll say. And what do you think that the uh, Federal Reserve will do? Will it do three or will it do four for the year? Um, I think they uh, somewhere between three or four. I, I don't really have a strong feeling. I think they're very, very happy to see the economy doing a little better, inflation ticking up a little bit, so they can kind of dig themselves out of the hole that they did when they pursued zero interest rates. Do you believe that uh, stocks are overvalued right now? No, I think they're fairly to slightly undervalued. Considering the growth that we have in the economy, the, the sustainable momentum in the real economy, and are there specific areas uh, of the market and specific industry groups that you would favor over others? Well, I still think technology is going to be the winning sector for the year. And actually, the sector is still up for the year, even after the pounding that we've had today and a few other days. I think industrials will do well, reflecting CapEx expenditures. And I think that certain parts of healthcare will do very well. So that's uh, that's enough to make a portfolio. Indeed. Uh, the uh, the tech portfolio that you, you might uh, be thinking about, should it include uh, social media stocks such as uh, Facebook? Well, that's up to um, individual investors to analyze um, and see. Um, the uh, there certainly are enough big growers in the in the Fang family that are still very attractive. Such as, uh, well, such as uh, Netflix, I think is still very attractive, and uh, also um, Alphabet, Google, which is uh, taking a pounding here too. Um, because those companies have what looks like uh, long-term growth a lot higher than other sectors. And you'd be buying that growth of uh, Netflix because uh, we're talking about a PE that really, I mean, I guess it's just academic at this point, whether you're looking at uh, an estimated PE of uh, trailing earnings of maybe, what, 234 or estimated PE of 114. Yes. Well, I'm not making a specific prediction on Netflix, but I'm saying that uh, companies that have exceptional growth often have exceptional PEs that are detached from the way we look at uh, more prosaic companies. Okay. Uh, what about investing in high-yield bonds? Do you think that that is something that is currently attractive? I was looking earlier at uh, the comparison between, uh, let's say, 10-year treasuries at 2.85%. Do you think high-yield is an area that investors ought to still uh, add to? 
if you're a fixed income investor, I think it'll continue to be the best performing sector as it was last year. It's um, down mildly for the year to date, but it's still outperformed investment grade corporates and treasuries because you do get a lot of extra yield, three to four percentage points more than treasuries. And with defaults very low, I think those the yield spread will work narrower. I think those bonds will hold their value. Um, a yield of five to six percent is pretty good if there's a low probability of default, which I think there is. We heard earlier today a couple of thoughts about uh, being bullish on commodities and commodity-related stocks as well as commodity-related currencies. If you get the continued growth of, uh, of global economies, do you think that this is also an area for uh, to be bullish about? I think that's debatable because as the economies of the world continue to develop, I think commodities are less and less a uh, proportion of their GDP outlook. And I think a lot of hot money has gone into commodities. And uh, I think demand will be, uh, you know, above average because we're on an upcycle. But it's not a sector that appeals to me right in here. And you mentioned uh, industrials. We talked to technology for just a second. Industrials, any specific areas of the industrial sector? I continue to like the defense companies. They have sustainable cash flow. They don't really have competitors, uh, well-run companies that should ramp up their revenues from not only U.S., but also from uh, more global demand. So I think they're very well positioned. Thank you very much, uh, Margie Patel, Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager, Wells Fargo Asset Management, uh, joining us from Boston. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.